Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Sanzel, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It is a process of choosing political candidates for the fall, of strengthening the coalition confronting Russia, but most of all, of coming to terms with a tightening Fed. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on what can get the job done on inflation. This is a feature, not a bug, associated with the tightening of monetary policy. And Tom Shapiro of GTIS Partners on risks to the housing market as interest rates rise. The consumer is stretched, and that is certainly going to be an issue on a going forward basis. This week, we did a lot of preparing preparing to add Sweden and Finland to NATO when the leaders of the two countries paid a visit to President Biden at the White House. Well, it's incredibly historic. This completely reshapes the post-Cold War security alliance in Europe. Finland and Sweden make NATO stronger. Preparing for midterm elections less than six months away as five states held primaries. Though in Pennsylvania, Republicans have some more work to do, as Senate candidate Dave McCormick explained. Now we have tens of thousands 
of, of mail-in ballots that have not been counted, but we can see the path ahead, we can see victory ahead. But no one, and I mean no one, is preparing harder than Fed Chair Jay Powell preparing for the next round of rate hikes. Inflation is, is coming down. That's what we really need to see. Honestly, we'll just, we will go until we feel like we're at a place where we can, uh, where we can say yes, financial conditions are in an appropriate place. Equity markets this week believed the chair, and if that weren't enough, then chilling news out of retailers like Target and Walmart reinforced the idea that harder times may lie ahead. With the S&P down for the seventh week in a row, the longest losing streak since 2001, and though it flirted with a bear market, it came back late on Friday, ending just above 3,900, down 3% overall for the week. While the Nasdaq, already in bear territory, was down another 3.8% this week, but the bond market it was a different story, with the 10-year rallying for the second week in a row, ending up with a yield below 2.8%. To help us sort it all out, we welcome now Bob Michael. He's CIO of Global Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodities at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And Sarah Malik, Chief Investment Officer at Nuveen. So welcome, both of you. It's great to have you here. Sarah, I'm going to start with you, because there was so much activity in equities this week. What happened? David, there was three key drivers for the market this week. First was the retail wreckage, which shocked investors on Wednesday because we saw demand destruction. Consumers are not willing to pay anything for goods anymore. And secondarily, we finally did see that shift in spending from goods to services, but it came with a healthy dose of inventory building up on the goods side. This is not good for retailers' business model. So Bob, Sarah says maybe the Fed can take its foot off the gas on interest rate hikes. What did we see in the bond market? Because we had seen that really dramatic ramp up in the yield in the 10-year, and then it sort of plateaued the last couple of weeks. Well, David, unlike the equity market, the bond market actually found solid footing this <laughs> week. And it all started when Fed Fed expectations of rate hikes settled at around two and three quarters percent a year. And I know that's two percent from where we are now. But earlier this month, it was at three percent. And the concern was that it was headed north to three and a half or higher. Once Fed rate hike expectations settled down, the Treasury market settled down. You said we're at 280. Last week, we were at 320. And again, the concern was that we were headed to 350. It feels as though the market is getting very comfortable with the narrative that the path to a 3% Fed funds rate will be enough for now to slow down growth and inflationary pressures, or at least get the Fed to pause. Now look, I'll admit, it wasn't a perfect bond market. Corporate credit still had a tough week. Thanks very much, equity market and Sarah. <laughs> it was the lousy earnings that Sarah talked about. And we had high yield yielding now 8%. It started the month at 7%. Bob, Sarah raised it, recession. Uh, how do you see the likelihood of recession? I think most people I've talked to, not over the next 12 months, but you go out 24 months, it's different. I think when you look at the next 12 months, in the U.S., you still have to get through the summer where there's a lot of pent-up demand for travel and leisure and unemployment is still very low and wages are going up. I think when you start to get out 18 to 24 months, then you're looking at a lot of things. You're looking at where rates will be, the cumulative impact of rate hikes. We think they'll be about 3%. You're looking at the bite that inflation will have taken out of the economy. You'll have another year, year and a half of higher inflation than the consumer would like to see. You'll have a strong dollar. It's still possible for the Fed to engineer a soft landing, but frankly, it looks very aspirational when you figure they have to battle the highest rate of inflation in 40 years and drain away the greatest amount of liquidity we've seen in the history of Earth. 
So Sarah, if Bob's right, what does that say to equities? I think, you know, for equities, it definitely leads to more downside in a recessionary environment they have not priced it in. But that's also why we're looking for those companies that are less dependent on economic growth. That does lead us to growth stocks. They have some of the worst returns year to date. And then also fundamentally strong sectors. Uh, Energy is a sector we still like because of the fundamentals. Tight supply, demand should remain reasonably strong, and producers are being very disciplined. And then finally, dividend growers. If you look at history, companies that have strong balance sheets, cash flow, can continue to grow their dividends. Dividends, they'll give you that portfolio protection within equities and should perform quite well while the Fed raises hikes and be defensive during a recession. Okay, Sarah and Bob are going to be staying with us because we want to put some money to work here. We're going to ask them for some investment advice given what we are seeing in this tumultuous market. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This was the week when the stock market staged what it euphemistically calls a correction, plunging below the 1,000 mark for the first time since mid-November, and came amid growing investor concern over the state of the dollar at home and abroad. Domestically, how much it's going to cost in terms of escalating interest rates on the dollar, and abroad, how much it's going to be worth in terms of other currencies, whose relative value was on the rise. 
That, of course, is Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week nearly 50 years ago now, reminding us of the similarities and, for that matter, the differences as well between then and now. Sarah Malik of Nuveen and Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan have stayed with us. So, Bob, let me come back to you. It is a different time, although there are some similarities. I, I'm not sure whether there's a correction or we're actually seeing a downright bear market right now. But let's talk about investment in fixed income. Where are there opportunities from your point of view? By the way, I hope it's a correction because if I'm right, I think it took about 10 years for the Dow to get back up above 1,000 <laughs> from that taping. Look, when we look at the, the repricing in the bond market, it's been dramatic. For the first four or five months of the year, it's been the worst bond market in history by a lot of measures. We want to take advantage of that. We think it's gone too far. I was in Kentucky visiting clients. There was a lot of discussion about municipal bonds. And there are a lot of individual and institutional investors that are looking at muni bonds yielded 1% at year end. They're now yielding over 3%. On a taxable equivalent yield, that's about 5%. And municipal finances actually look pretty good. The other area that we're getting back into that looks pretty attractive to us, I touched on earlier, it's high yield. You're at an 8% yield. You're at 7% at the start of the month. You were 4.5% at the start of the year. A pretty dramatic repricing, and I think a lot of investors have just fled the market and forgotten that it's a cleaner market. 6% of the market defaulted away in 2020. You've got a lot of middle America industrial companies in there with great fundamentals. To me, that's where a lot of value exists. I want to come back to high yields, but Sarah, what about munis? Because I think you're interested in those as well, right? Yeah, for fixed income in general, rising rates are going to be a headwind. But similar to Bob, we don't see rates rising to the degree that they have year to date. So for fixed income, there are areas where you can lean in. Municipal bonds do have strong fundamentals. At the front end of the curve, we're seeing high yields. And in taxable fixed income, we like corporate credit, those companies and sectors with strong balance sheets, but also emerging markets and high yield, you're getting a good return now, much better than you did in the past. So both of, all of those are areas that we like in, in taxable fixed and munis. So I'm really curious about the high yield because there's a lot of talk about possible the spreads, as they say, blowing out on high yields. So you don't want to be in high yields when that happens. Are you confident that's not going to happen? And when you have rising rates, don't you have to be worried about some defaults? Um, you have to worry about defaults right before recession. And our analysis shows that any backup in high yield credit spreads is a buying opportunity unless a recession is imminent. Hmm. Expecting one two years out isn't imminent because we know anything can happen. So for us, credit quality still looks great. The yield is there. There's a lot of money on the sidelines that needs to put yield into their portfolios. As long as things remain stable, we think that money will come in and support the market. Sarah, you mentioned earlier some of the equities you're interested in. You mentioned energy, for example. You mentioned Microsoft, maybe Costco. What makes you interested in those particular sorts of equities? So within energy, we love the fundamentals of the sector, tight supply, strong demand, producer discipline. Uh, particularly refiners, we think, can benefit, benefit at this point in the cycle. Within the FANG stocks, we don't think that they're dead. You just need to be selective, look for ones with less competition, more of a unique business model. Not only Microsoft, but Amazon. They had a very tough quarter, but they've really, in a sense, overinvested in their logistics. They have no, so much control over their global distribution. It's going to be a positive for them and pay off in the long term. We don't look at Amazon as a post pandemic stock that's just going to suffer from here. So, so Bob, on the, on the fixed income side, is there a corporate bond sort of tracking of what Sarah just said on the equity side? Are those the corporate bonds you're most interested in? Um, I think it's just so broad-based now. Everything got thrown away. I wish I could say there was a particular market or sector, but 
everything cheapened up so dramatically. It's just a matter of going in, having the nerve to buy when everyone else is selling, and just hanging on for a little bit and ride through the volatility. But what if, in fact, uh, there is more of a chance of recession than we're anticipating? How do you hedge against that? How do you protect yourself, Bob? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things. One is you have to go up in credit quality because if, in fact, we do go into a recession, then you are going to see default rates go up. Then there's going to be a flight to quality. So not only do you want higher quality corporate bonds, you want government bonds again, regardless of the yield. We've seen that yield could be anything in the government bond market. And then you want to still stay in the dollar. So those are the kinds of things uh, where you would go to if recession became really probable near term. So, Sarah, what about the dollar? I mean, we heard there Mr. Ruckheiser 50 years ago talking about the dollar. Uh, boy, we've had a very strong dollar. This week we saw maybe a little bit of a backing off on the strength of the dollar. Do you have a theory on the dollar and how does it affect your investment strategy? Well, I hate to say anything different than Lou Rukeyser, but <laughs> our, we're, we're in the camp that the dollar should remain pretty strong. The U.S. is a safe haven trade. There's so many geopolitical risks out there from the Russia-Ukraine situation to the lockdowns in China and the supply chain issues that they're having. And also, can that monetary policy really have an impact? Uh, so we're very selective non-U.S. We only like Latin America at this point in emerging markets. Dollar remains strong as the U.S. raises interest rates. We think that, you know, at best it's flat, that likely remains pretty strong going Sarah, I also want to ask you the same question as Bob. On the equity side, for example, if you thought there was a larger chance of recession than you've said so far, how would you hedge against that? Well, first of all, I think market timing is a loser's game. The market can turn on a dime. We've seen that happen consistently this week. So uh, we don't recommend people trying to get in and out of the market. This is where you need to be diversified, disciplined, averaging into the market. And then you just need to look for those companies that are resilient in those sectors where they can uh, continue to perform well because they have the profitability. They have pricing power to overcome inflation, strong free cash flow, strong balance sheets. That's where we'd be positioning in equities, stay out of, you know, unprofitable technology companies where, you know, you might have a, they might have a hard time surviving during a deep recession. And Bob, sort of finally, uh, Warren Buffett and others have said you want to buy when others are selling in the reverse, right? Right now, as you look at the marketplace, where are people selling that you'd like to buy? They're making a mistake. Well, I think uh, we talked about corporate bonds. I think that was a big mistake. I think there was a lot of selling of municipals. I don't think that was a mistake. I think that was the technicals because they had to raise cash to pay capital gains taxes at the start of the year. I think some of the emerging market uh, debt sectors look pretty attractive to me. I'm glad you raised that because I was going to ask about outside the United States. Do you think emerging markets might be attractive on the fixed income side? Yeah, because they've gone through a rate adjustment. If you look at the U.S., we've done two rate hikes for 75 basis points. If you look at the emerging market since the start of 2021, we've had something like 130 rate hikes for a cumulative 11,000 basis points. There are high real yields there. They front run the inflation. They're in a good spot. This has been a great discussion. Thank you so much to Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan and Sarah Malik of Nuveen. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The housing. Housing. Kind of climate and climate and climate. Housing. We all need it. There isn't enough of it. And prices are going up. 
Part of the problem is that we never really recovered from 2008, according to Jonathan Gray of Blackstone. The challenge on housing has been many years in the making. If you step back and look at the supply picture, uh, we have been building housing at half the rate we did prior to the financial crisis. And the Fed's monetary support for mortgages has helped stimulate the market. It was very hard to understand why, when we were in the midst of the biggest house price run-up ever, that the Fed was buying mortgage-backed securities on a substantial scale. But now, mortgage rates are pushing the other way, climbing back up over 5%, driving the housing sentiment index down the most since the pandemic, which leads Wells Fargo CFO Mike Santamassino to anticipate softening in the market. I think we've seen, you know, if, if it's not the largest increase in mortgage rates in a quarter ever, it's pretty close. Um, and so I think that's definitely going to have an impact on the mortgage market. And this week's mortgage applications seem to prove that point down 11 percent. People are not entering into contracts or trying to buy homes anymore because it costs too much. And to take us through this housing market, we welcome now Tom Shapiro. He's president and chief investment officer of GTIS Partners. They manage about $4.3 billion in real estate assets. Tom, thanks so much for joining us on Wall Street Week. First of all, I want to start with your take on where the housing market is right now. We've seen some slowing even this week with some new housing sales as well as existing housing sales. Sure. That, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, why don't I just give you a little anecdotal evidence of what, what we're seeing in the field right now. Our home sales are down about 15 to 20 percent, but that's a headline number. And, you know, I think it'd be helpful to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that number. The reason for the most part it's down is because we can't deliver homes. We're still having tremendous supply chain issues. Also, we find that a lot of home builders are actually holding back on the number of homes they want to deliver. And that is for a couple of reasons. One, inflation, because costs keep going up and they don't know what it's going to actually cost to finish the house. And, and two, they want to ride up the home price appreciation. So I would say for the most part right now, while we see a 15 to 20% slowdown in sales year over year, a lot of that is because of other extraneous issues. It's more of a delivery issue than it's a demand issue. With that said, we're definitely starting to see a pullback. Uh, we're starting to have to go deeper into our wait lists. But every house at this point that we deliver in the markets we're in, we are selling. But I think we have to be careful about what, what we see you know, on a going forward basis, because definitely we're starting to see things slowing down. That's a really helpful way of putting it up, because we're having those discussions about the overall economy. Is it supply? Is it demand? As I understand it, you've got a supply problem because of supply chains. People say that's going to go away. Is it going away in housing? Well, it's not. I mean, we definitely have issues. We have problems getting trusses and windows and appliances. Um, we're delivering homes with plywood windows at times. Um, it's, it, we're having all sorts of issues. And of course, you know, the war in Ukraine and what's going on in China and the work stoppages there, um, the deliveries and transportation is an issue and jobs are an issue and trades are an issue. So it, it's gotten marginally better but we still have tremendous supply chain issues. Uh, and look, if you look at how many houses we're delivering a year in total, this is all, all forms. It's about 1.2 million housing units a year, which is sort of in equilibrium. 
So, so Tom, uh, some of the issue can be on the demand side. At some point, we've heard about mortgage rates going up to, what, 5.5%, something like that. So that must affect it to some extent. Are you seeing some effects with that? Because we also have the Fed is going to start selling off some of those mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the consumer stretch. So why are they stretch? They're stretched because of inflation. So we have all sorts of issues. We have gas prices are more expensive and we have the cost of food is more expensive. And of course, as you point out, mortgage rates are, are, are an issue. So the consumer is stretched and that is certainly going to be an issue on a going forward basis on housing. But we are seeing, you know, people taking less options. They're going to slightly smaller unit types um, and they're renting. So we aren't necessarily seeing a slowdown at this point because of mortgage rates. But again, I, I think we have to be careful. I, I think, you know, the crystal ball says it's going to get a lot worse. We're not seeing it today, but I think in the future we are going to see a slowdown. Um, and as I mentioned, the 15 to 20 percent or so we're seeing year over year decline at this point isn't a demand issue. Uh, but I think we shouldn't kid ourselves that we are seeing it. Again, the tra our traffic's down in a lot of our communities. It, it is starting to slow down. So I think we're going to start to see the slowdown come in the next couple of quarters. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Wall Street Week today. That is Tom Shapiro of GTIS Partners. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined once again by our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, this was quite a week in the markets. You saw equity markets really selling up rather substantially. It's got a lot of people nervous. Is that going to help or hurt the Fed's effort to address inflation? I think it's part of the Fed's efforts to uh, address inflation. The way monetary policy works is by raising the costs of capital and discouraging investment. The way it works is by reducing wealth, which reduces uh, spending. This is part of the uh, process. This is a feature, not a bug, associated with uh, the tightening of monetary policy that we've had. And the reason I've been reasonably confident that the economy will slow down but not so confident about just where interest rates will go is because of the uncertainty about what economists call the transmission mechanism, how large a decline in markets, how much of a discouragement of housing you get as rates go up. Well, to that very point, what is the risk from where you see it right now of the Fed essentially getting cold feet as we see the markets really come off substantially, S&P now really in bear market territory? What's the risk that they'll let up uh, too soon on the interest rate hikes? Look, there's two risks in a situation uh, like this, that we overshoot the runway and that we land the plane too hard. And those are both very real risks uh, in uh, this situation. It's a very, very difficult landing that the Fed's uh, attempted is. I've said on your show before, David, there's never been a moment when we had unemployment below four and inflation above four when we avoided having a recession within the next two years. And that just goes to show the huge difficulty of the task uh, that is before the Fed. My own judgment is that it's distinctly more likely than not, probably two and three or three and four, that we will have a recession that will start uh, sometime within the next two years. When we look at the markets right now, a lot of this reaction, we think, is a reaction to the possibility of higher interest rates. Uh, is it possible it's actually bleeding over into the underlying economy itself? Because we also saw some retail sales numbers that concern people from Walmart uh, and from Target this week. Maybe people aren't spending as much money. We also have seen some softening housing numbers. There are various indications. And by the way, a lot of the things that people are buying, they're buying with increased credit card loans. So I think that the prospect of recession is looking much more real to markets right now than it was uh, a few months ago. You see that in uh, the way in which certain retail stocks have been hammered. You see that in the way some credit spreads have uh, widened. Um, and it's just, you see it in the behavior of uh, the overall uh, market. So I think you still have um, more room to go. And as I say, I do think we're unlikely to get out of this uh, with sustained expansion. There are some thoughts there are other ways as well to address the inflation problem. One of the suggestions is increasing corporate taxes. That's something suggested by President Biden. Mr. Bezos of Amazon came out against that. You had a little bit of a disagreement on Twitter this week. I've been hardly consistently supportive of everything the White House has said on uh, fiscal uh, 
policy and now, I haven't been consistent with everything they've said on policy towards business uh, either. And I've got great respect for uh, Jeff Bezos as a business leader and as an observer of the economy, but I didn't really see his point. It seemed to me that it was pretty natural to raise corporate taxes so as to reduce spending when you had an economy that was overheating. And it seemed to me pretty reasonable strategy to try to raise taxes to reduce spending in ways that would affect the most fortunate people in uh, the society. And it seems to me that that's what President Biden was is trying to do. And that's what he pointed up in his remarks. So I didn't understand why uh, Jeff Bezos was suggesting that they were somehow an obfuscation or somehow an inappropriate uh, kind of commentary. You can agree or disagree with the president's policy, but I found Bezos's comments uh, to be somewhat off base. Another way that President Biden has suggested we might address some of the inflation problem is by more vigorous enforcement of antitrust laws. We had the, the assistant attorney general for antitrust this week come out and say he thinks he's got some problems with private equity. What do you make of the efforts at the FTC and the Department of Justice on antitrust front? I'm very worried about whether they are in the right direction. I don't think there's any question that we need to step up antitrust enforcement in America. I don't think there's any question that there are areas where we have too much monopoly power that should be, that should be prosecuted, principally where individual firms are merging to get excessive market shares in particular industries. And the budgets of those agencies have been allowed to erode in ways that are quite damaging. What I think is badly misguided and potentially dangerous to our economic future is the set of doctrines that people jokingly refer to as hipster uh, antitrust or the new Brandeisians after uh, Justice Brandeis. That's a theory that says antitrust shouldn't be about maximizing benefits to consumers but should be about some other different set of abstract objectives. And I think that tilts very easily into a kind of dangerous populism. If the head of the antitrust division thinks that there are mergers that are headed towards monopoly, he should try to block those mergers. If the head of the antitrust division believes that there are companies that are engaged in inappropriate exclusionary business practices, he should prosecute those companies. Okay, Larry, one quick one here at the end. Uh, there was a big objection from the shareholders to Jamie Dimon's compensation. There was a $50 million bonus that they were going to pay him that they really objected to. Uh, what did you think of that? Look, I think taxes ought to be more progressive. And so Jamie Dimon, ought, Jamie Dimon and everyone else who makes a lot of money ought to be uh, paying more in taxes. It ought to be much harder for them to pass large fortunes to uh, their kids. 
But God, if you look at uh, what uh, Jamie Dimon has contributed to the market value of the share owners of uh, J.P. Morgan, I don't think there's anything unreasonable about his being paid uh, and making as much money in a year as a really great pro golfer. <laughs> and uh, so I was uh, surprised at uh, those objections. I think the way to get at issues of inequity is to have right. more progressive taxation, yep. more burdensome taxation on uh, estates, get rid of a whole set right. of uh, loopholes, right. but driving people out of leading public companies yeah. into the right. private sphere, away from public companies. Yeah. I don't think that's smart strategy for our country. Okay, thank you so much. Always great to have you with us. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. The unknown unknown. That's what Donald Rumsfeld warned about when he was defense secretary. There are things we know, things we know are issues but don't know the answer to, and then there are the things we don't even know we don't know. Right now, investors face their fair share of known unknowns, like where inflation is heading. You know it's not going to be good for a while. Whether we're facing a recession next year. Every single American worker is going backwards right this minute. Whether China's problems with COVID will continue our supply chain problems. Clearly, China's industrial might was slowed by the lockdowns. What the end game is for Russia's war with Ukraine. I think the... Off-ramps have gotten slightly narrower. And, of course, whether we're facing another wave of COVID. Cases are rising, hospitalizations are rising. But those are the known unknowns. Congress has now added an unknown unknown to the list we need to be worried about. UFOs. The House Intelligence Committee's Subcommittee on Terrorism held hearings this week to get some answers on unidentified flying objects. We have seen an increasing number of unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft or objects in military-controlled training areas uh, and training ranges and other designated airspace. And in case you wonder why our Congress, with so much else on its plate, has decided to take up the question of UFOs, fear not. It's been on the case for over 50 years now, dating back to Gerald Ford, not when he was president, but when he was House Minority Leader, and organized a hearing after complaining the testimony from an Air Force expert calling reported sightings swamp gas was flippant. So as you go through your portfolio and consider the upside and downside risks, you might want to include the possibility of alien intervention. That, as Rod Serling put it, we've moved into a land of both shadow and substance. Between light and shadow, it is an area which we call the twilight zone. I'll leave it to you to decide whether that's a risk to the upside or a risk to the downside. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.